Hello everybody and welcome to the Alien vs Predator Galaxy podcast, the original Alien and Predator podcast. This is regular host Aaron Percival. This is co-host Adam Zeller. And we are also joined by a special guest today. We are honoured to have the writer of this beauty. And for those of you listening rather than watching, it is AVP Thicker Than Blood. It is Jeremy Barlow on hey. the show today. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. So we only normally go and annoy the creative people <laughs> making these things when it's something that we we love, a particular entry that we really enjoy. And as of recording, I haven't done the written review yet, sorry, mm. and we haven't done our podcast on it yet. So the listeners might not know just how much I really enjoyed this oh, one. Thank you. But, That's flattering. Uh, you, you will get a very glowing written review <laughs> after... Probably before this interview goes up, actually, but, yeah, you know, yeah. at some point. So, yeah. Uh, this, thank you so much. This one, I, I don't want to say it surprised me because I don't want mm. that to come across as... Um, oh, say it. I mean, that's the reaction that I wanted when I, I sat down to really do this. I, I knew I was taking a chance with setting, you know, the, the way the story was set up and the, and the characters. And I thought that, you know, the fans are either going to really like it or really hate it. And so I was <laughs> I was sweating there. You know, it's been all year. Like, issue two came out in January. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And you're only halfway through the story at that point. And I was I was kind of reading the reaction and a lot of it was like, oh, I hate Maria so much, you know, and <laughs> it's like, well, you know, you're only halfway. Give it give it some. So that I'm I'm actually that is the reaction that I like to hear that you are surprised mm-hmm. by it. Was, yeah, it was the same for me. I ended up really enjoying it myself. And I, I do feel like the uh, second half really brought together the whole thing for sure. But yeah, I mean, I'm I'm right with you, Aaron. It was probably one of the best, well, AVP comics we've, we've mm-hmm. had in a long oh, time. Thanks. I mean, there haven't really been that many standalone ones. I think was there after the crossovers with Fire and Stone and, no, yeah, and Life and so. Death? Yeah, no. I think this is the only one we've had since the, well, even Three World War. That was a crossover too. So mm-hmm. like, it's been a while. But no, as a self-contained story, this this was absolutely fantastic. Thank you. That's funny because I always say, you know, we're, we're an AVP podcast, we're an AVP website, an AVP outlet, whatever. But the amount of alien versus predator stuff mm-hmm. we actually get to cover is um, <laughs> yeah. not much, yeah. pretty minimal. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think it was like every other page I was going, oh, damn, <laughs> Thank you. reading through it. Yeah. So, yeah, brilliant. Yeah, well, and, you know, I can only take so much credit for that. I mean, Doug Wheatley is amazing. So he's and and Rain as well. Yeah, they're both just incredible. I would seize the pages back and I would just be like, man, how did I get this lucky to work with these guys? <laughs> yeah, another one of our favorite comics, both Aaron and I, is uh, The Destroying Angels. From mm, oh, yeah, yeah. Aliens, yeah. So it was good to see him come back. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, lo- I lost my shit when I saw the creative team on yeah. this one because I really like Dust to Dust as well. I really like Rain's work on that. Oh, and yeah. Destroying Angels is one of my all-round favorite comics narratively mm-hmm. and and artistically mm-hmm. so yeah and it's so been a while that, that one that one was quite a while ago right oh yeah yeah late, yeah, na- late was, 90s yeah, yeah. I think something like that and because i don't think Doug came back until he did some of the variant covers for mm-hmm, mm-hmm. fire and no life and death yeah he was doing a lot of star wars with mm-hmm. randy stradley that's that's kind of where he's been and i think he did a uh I'd say he did some avatar stuff as well but yeah he's been he's been working in other universes so it was awesome to see him come back to this one bring him back yeah yeah definitely so you know we, we've already had a little bit of a natter but first things first jeremy mm-hmm. you know thank thank you for taking the time to come and chat with us today yeah, absolutely but before we get into the nerdy nitty-gritty of why did you do this and why did you do that <laughs> okay yeah of, 
of Thicker Than Blood. Could you just tell our listeners and our viewers a little bit about yourself outside of, you know, Alien and Predator? Yeah, um, I've been writing professionally for about 10 years, 12 years, I guess. And I, I do a lot of licensed books. Like I, I mentioned before, I've done Star Wars, Call of Duty, <laughs> blanking on something. Oh, Mass Effect. I did a lot of Mass Effect comics. And it's just, it's kind of become my thing. I, I like to, I don't know, I like to sort of go into a situation where the world is already built and then find an emotional entry point. Yeah, I was an editor at Dark Horse for a while. I was an associate editor there until about 2008 and then just kind of went off on my own. And that's it. I live in Portland, Oregon. Got a wife and a dog and a cat. And uh, I mean, you have to if you work for Dark Horse. Yeah, I think if you work in comics, you have to live in Portland. <laughs> but yeah, I was homeschooled. I grew up really working class. My dad's an electrician. So there was a lot of like, I had a lot of anxiety growing up about I wanted to be creative and I wanted to write, but I had no path. I had nobody, I had no like role model or example. So I sort of scraped my way out of that. And uh, yeah, I feel like I'm finally sort of figuring it out. So how, how long have you been writing for the industry? Well, I started at Dark Horse in 2001 and then I left Dark Horse in 2008 and I've been writing professionally since then. So you, were, you didn't write when you were an editor? I did a little bit. When other writers would blow their deadlines, I would write fill-in issues. I felt really guilty about that because I didn't want to look like I was taking away work from freelancers. So I wrote under a pseudonym. A lot of stuff I wrote under a new, uh, pseudonym. But I just found that, yeah, Lucasfilm liked the work that I was doing and Dark Horse liked the work that I was... I was I was editing full-time and then I was writing on the weekends and at night. And I got to a point where I realized like I'm doing two full-time jobs here, so I should just pick one. Uh, you know, pick the one that doesn't have the steady paycheck is the one I went for. <laughs> yeah. So always the danger of the creative. Yeah. Stuff, yeah. And it's been, I've been doing it long enough now to not freak out, you know, like my freak outs, sometimes I'll go months without, without an assignment, you know, and it used to be if it was six weeks, I just think I'm done. I'm, it's over. They figured me out. <laughs> but yeah, it's just, you know, it comes in waves and it comes and goes. And I'm married. My wife has a stable job and a good salary. So that, that helps out a lot. <laughs> yeah. You know, that's, that's the key. If you want to write professionally, it's just marry up. <laughs> and and outside of Alien and Predator, then you you've done. Would you say mostly Star Wars? Would I've that be more pro prolific? I would say outside? probably Star Wars and uh, Mass Effect. I've done a lot of Mass Effect. The, the and a lot of video game tie-in stuff. Call of Duty, like I said. I wrote a mini series based on Metalocalypse, the Adult Swim series from like oh, yeah. eight eight years ago yeah, about the death metal band. Yeah, it was great. It was one of the best jobs I ever had. Did you do like the Black Ops comics? Yeah, for? Black Ops Four. Oh, okay. mm -hmm. Yeah, those were the online promotional comics a couple of years ago. I mean, my heart's in AVP and and Star Wars, but I try to every assignment that I get, I just try to find like what is an emotional hook that I can find in this world, and then just sort of dig into that. So to go more specifically to, you know, our favorite franchises, mm -hmm. one, one of our traditions on the show is to ask our guests about the first time they ever got to experience the franchises. Mm -hmm. Now, normally we'll be talking about one or the other. So it'll be a very specific, but you, mm -hmm. you get Alien versus Predator. So you've got yeah. all three here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Can you remember the first time you ever came across our favorite extraterrestrials and their, you know, endless clash? Yeah. So it was Aliens. Aliens was the first one that I saw. I was about 11 years old and it was, they were premiering it on cable, HBO or Showtime, whatever channel it was. And there was this big buildup, you know, Saturday, Aliens. And I just begged my parents, please let me, I just want to see this movie so bad. I must have been 12 because I think they were like, well, you're, you're a man now. I think you can handle it. So yeah, so all week long, I'm so excited. And then I finally sit down Saturday night and just, just blew my mind. It was so good. Start to finish, just all of it was so good. And then I became insufferable after that. I was just all my friends. Anytime we go out on a bike ride, I'm just, man, nah, yeah, nah, the, you know, plot start to finish everybody to the point where they were just like, shut up. Or <laughs> so, you know, our <laughs> parents won't let us watch this movie. Just you've ruined it. You've ruined it. Yeah. From there. And I think 
My younger brother, Mark, was a huge Schwarzenegger fan. And so when Predator rolled around, I think we saw that one a little bit later. But yeah, that was another one. that was just like, man, how does this... It's like quintessential 80s awesomeness, you know? So yeah, so uh, it was Aliens, and then I think it was Predator, and then probably Predator 2, which I have a soft spot for. I went back and re- revisited it recently. I was like, yeah, this movie is weird and great. Like, it's set in... I, I don't I don't even... You guys can remember the year that it's set. It's set in the future, but everybody dresses like a 1950s detective. 97. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 97. The, 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 yeah. the far future of 1997. Yes. Oh, it's so good. It came out in, in 90, I think, late yeah, 90. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, BS projecting forward to 2028. 20, Everybody <laughs> dresses like they're in the 90s, right? Um, so, yeah. So, it was the, I didn't see Alien until later, I think. And then that was a whole different experience. Like, that is just, I can't decide if Alien or Aliens is my favorite of the franchises because they're both so good in, in different ways. They, they were both so impactful in their own way. Yeah. You know, um, genre defining in certain ways. It's, it's the eternal struggle is Alien yeah. or Aliens. Yeah. Yeah, I think with Thicker Than Blood, I definitely drew more from Alien. I really wanted to, you know, there's there's moments in Alien, like when Ripley's going back for Jonesy, you know, and that just that tugging of your heart where you just think she's doomed, you know, and it's the single alien in that was just so frightening. Yeah, I wanted that. I wanted more of that. Yeah, it's not very common that kind of a tease of one of our questions coming up that you have just one alien in an AVP mm -hmm. comic. I don't know if we've honestly ever... Well, yeah, no, there's been a couple, I think. Maybe the AVP comics that have one alien, Aaron, can you think not, of any? Not very many. No, because yeah. it, it was always branded aliens mm -hmm. versus Predator. So you normally got more of that aliens mm -hmm. tone and plural. Plur oh, my God. I'll stick my tongue in it. Uh, plur plural. Oh, my God. Plurality. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Thank you, Jeremy. But you know, last last couple of years, though, I think they rebranded to Alien versus mm -hmm. Predator. But yeah, yeah you, you normally ended up with multiple. So that that was one of the things. You know, again, Adam Steele's uh, yeah. one of the questions later. But that's one of the things that stuck out about Thicker Than Blood. Yeah. So again, it was just like. I think that, you know, I love aliens, but it's the more you escalate the conflict between, I mean, when you've got, when you've got your main character as a, as a space marine with a pulse rifle, you know, a single alien doesn't feel that threatening, you know, so you've got to add more aliens and then you've got to add more predators and you've got to add more marines and it just becomes this arms race of more, more, more. And I really liked just how terrifying a single xenomorph is. Like if any one of us saw a single xenomorph, we'd lose it. We'd totally lose it. It's terrifying, especially because they let us use the big chap design, which I think is one of the best. You went even further and you did, there's a const, oh, I forgot to actually write in a question about this. There's a big sort of friendly debate on, on our boards mm -hmm. as to big chaps, you know, hidden skull. Oh, yeah. So are you yeah. pro school, anti school kind of thing? And, and with this one, Doug yeah. went for the skull. And he I went like, for the yes! skull. Yeah. Yeah. That was all Doug and Randy. Like uh, when I got, when I saw the design back, I was like, oh man, yes, please. I love it. And so some of the movements that it was kind of shown making in the panels very much reminded us of uh, Alien Isolation, the, mm -hmm. the game. And that game for us, it was like super significant in terms of showing how the alien could be scary again. Yeah, yeah. And I definitely think that was kind of evoked in the comics here. Very much like when it creeped out of the door in the Predator spaceship. Yeah, and there were a couple yeah. other moments like when it hopped towards the, the younger android character where mm -hmm. it just like reminded me of the movement it made in that game. Yeah, the the challenge that we had when we started out, I, I bit off a lot for Doug and I. What I really wanted to do is do, I wanted to do a story that was set in a really bright environment, but I still wanted it to be scary. I really wanted to take all of those elements 
you know, because when you think of alien or predator AVP, it's always dark corridors and, you know, water dripping down chains and it's haunted house. And I just, when we started out, I'm like, let's see if we can do this. Let's see if we can have a, a setting that's basically like a Las Vegas hotel in space and see if we can still have a scary alien. And Doug just knocked it out of the park. Yeah, I gotta really say, and, and Aaron will tell you this, like for years, I was like, I really want to see a uh, alien or an AVP story set on like a cruise ship in space. Yeah. Like I've been wanting that idea <laughs> for a long time. So to finally just see it, I was like, whoa, they did it. Yeah. So. I picked up on it somehow. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that, that, that one alien thing then, you mm-hmm. know, it, it wasn't just, it wasn't just that you had a single alien. It was that the entire dynamic of the way these, you know, the, the way these AVP mm-hmm. stories normally play out was, was just flipped around. You know, you were, you were saying it's the Marine and you throw in a ton mm-hmm. of aliens to, to up mm-hmm. the, you know, up the tension or up the stakes, but it normally goes a bunch of predators destroy. Yeah. Yeah. An absolute metric ton of aliens yeah. storming at them. I mean, yeah. just thinking about like war the other day and, and the way that's that particular story started and literal walls yeah but but in here you know you had a single alien that was an absolute beast yeah. this 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 was isolation's portrayal this was yeah. you know, our the way uh, big chap is portrayed in alien in our heads on the page so you know was was that reversal conscious yeah you know? i mean that's that's the version of the xenomorph that i like the most is the you know alien 3 for all of its problems like the single xenomorph in that i think is terrifying and i like the idea of just this terrifying beast and the other thing is when i got the assignment i just thought like people have done the marines in the in the wave after wave of aliens I'm not going to top it. Like, I'm not going to do better than that because it's great. It's already out there. So what can I do that goes in a different direction? And what can I do that's emotional? Like, I really wanted to do like one of my notes to Doug is like, let's break people's hearts and gross them out at the same time if we can. <laughs> yeah. So I just started thinking, thinking about like, well, what is the opposite of that? What is the opposite of the Marines and the, and the multitudes of everything? And it's just like, let's just get it down to the basics again of, of the scary beast xenomorph. And in the original idea, the main character was actually Denver, that guy with the bird that shows up for a little bit and then gets killed. Because I like hmm. the idea of a coward teaming up with a predator, like, uh, <laughs> you know, and, and sort of like pitting them against each other and just trying to survive. And I, I worked up a few issues of that. And I just thought there's no there's no core here. There's you know, this guy doesn't really evolve as it goes along. And I just thought, well, what's the least likely pairing? If we're expecting Marines, what's the least likely pairing that could team up with a Predator? And it was a couple of kids. And so that's sort of where it started. And then I just got to work on like, well, who are these kids? What is their dynamic? What is their conflict? And, you know, how do they fit in? And then everything just grew from there. The cruise ship came out of that and the parental relationship. And then Tyler being a, a replicant, Android came out of that. And I think you're um, mixing your franchises there. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. I just realized it. Well, I mean, if you squint, it wasn't there. They're it's Ridley Scott, right? like to connect them, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's the Android. So yeah, that became the challenge of like, okay, well, if we've got a couple of kids, what does that mean? You know, how is that interesting? And how does that connect to the Predator? And then, you know, as we go along, I can get into more of the stuff that didn't make it into the story that sort of plays into that as well. Sounds good. Just just to go back up then to yeah. we, we didn't we didn't get the well I suppose no you did talk about <laughs> not being able to pick between a favorite didn't you Oh man yeah I know oh, that's tough it's really tough I mean I Aliens is always going to have a, a place in my heart just for that experience I had when I was young is that what you're asking what franchise is my yeah. favorite well, which, well, which, which, which film is your favorite, favorite? Film? Oh I think as a kid it was Aliens and I think as an adult it's Alien it's got to be Alien it's got to it's just the <laughs> You know, the, the horror movie in space 
And Ripley is just such a great character, you know, like she's just so the the unlikely heroine against this monster. I think it's just the dynamic is just so great. Yeah. But, and, and it's her journey as well is interesting in itself. Yeah, it, I, yeah. it, over the course of the films, you know, the, the, the way she evolves gives different people different things to cling on to from mm-hmm. her identity to connect to it. You know, the unlikely hero, the mother figure, mm-hmm. uh, well, parental figure and, you know, fighting against all odds kind of thing. Yeah. You know, when you're, yeah. You've got so much on. So, yeah, she, she she's yeah. such a seminal character. Yeah, yeah, and that moment I said before, like when she goes back for the cat is such a human moment, you know? It's yeah. just like you get it. She's just a normal person up against this like unstoppable force. I, I love it. I love characters like that. And when it Go. comes to the uh, the people involved in the comics or novels, another question we always love to ask mm-hmm. is how familiar they were with the expanded universe before they got to play in it themselves. You know, as a former editor at Dark Horse, I'm mm-hmm. going to assume that you had some familiarity with the comics before writing. Uh, yeah. Blood. Yeah, I have a I have a working knowledge of it. I wasn't too deep into it. You know, obviously, whatever books I worked on when I was there. I would dip in and out of the franchises if there was a creative team that I really liked. Like I liked Dust to Dust. I thought that was yeah. phenomenal. Like Gabriel Hardman is is amazing. I can't remember the name of it, but the James Stokoe miniseries that came out a while back. Dead Orbit, yeah. yeah. That was a really good one as yeah. well. Mm-hmm. That one was great. So when I got the assignment, I started to go back and read. And I realized like I don't want to get too influenced. I don't want to get too much stuff in my head. Because then I started drifting more back toward the you know survival and marine stuff. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I would say probably I've got a I've got a working knowledge of it, but not not encyclopedic, if that makes sense. Any yeah. uh, favorite from the ones that you've read? I mean, it's always the most recent stuff, the dust to dust. I like Hunters <laughs> yeah. a lot. You know, I know Chris Warner. He's here in town, too. Mm-hmm. His stuff in um, Hunters, I thought, is really great. We both really enjoyed the Hunters yeah. series as well. Yeah. It's, it's a shame because we just read Hunters 3. And uh-huh. it's it definitely seems like they were setting it up for more than three still. Yeah. yeah. Rather well, than including it at the end of three. So, like, yeah, I don't think anybody knew the license was going away in you know 2019. I don't know. Maybe they did. I didn't. So. Yeah, I mean, we had a suspicion personally, just because yeah, sense with you know 20th Century Studios mm-hmm. owned by Disney. Yeah. So, but it is it is super bittersweet for us. Yeah, because I mean, Dark Horse having it for almost 30 years. Yeah, it's just, we loved a lot of the stories that that they told, and to have such a massive shift with the changing mm-hmm. publisher, it's mm-hmm. it'll be really interesting to see what yeah. comes of that. Yeah. Yeah, I have no knowledge of what they've got planned, but I saw the announcement for the first Alien series they're rolling out, Marvel, so stuff's in the works. What about Alien versus Predator as a concept then? You know, it it originated Mm -hmm. with Dark Horse, Mm -hmm. and it's very much... I think more of more of a transmedia kind of thing, you know. It, mm-hmm. it makes more waves in games and and comics, but of mm-hmm. course, it does have its films. Mm-hmm. So when did when did you sort of first come across the crossover as a concept? Well, I think I mean probably like everybody else. I remember when the comics came out, and I think that you know I think the hook of Alien Predator in the beginning was just the novelty of it. You know, you've got these two big franchises that are super popular, and you've got these two creations, the Xenomorph and the Yaucha, that are just so different but so compatible with each other. Yeah, I, re- I can't remember how old I was when the first AVP series came out. Well, it would have been, yeah. what, 89, 90? Yeah, something like that. So it wasn't, I was yeah. probably in my early teens. Anyway, I'm sorry, I'm rambling. What was, what was the question again? Uh, do you remember the first time you actually came across the comics? Oh, yeah, yeah. It was the, it was the, it had to have been the comics, I think, because they're right, the original. Yeah, I remember seeing those. I mean, I've been reading comics since I was five years old. So I remember seeing those and just thinking, like, what an amazing idea. This is, this is great. You know, and Chris Warner and Randy, Randy Stradley were just, they were just on it. They were just firing on all cylinders. Um, and even Norwood's covers for those as well. Yeah. They, 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 yeah some yeah. of the best. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. And then, you know, I saw the movies when they came out and I kind of felt like they didn't 
quite live up to the potential of the of the concept. You know, again, I think it just became like a mo- you know, it's just monsters fighting. It's King Kong versus Godzilla kind of thing. They didn't really get into the to the mythology of it that in a way that I thought could have been really awesome. But you know, you're not alone in that one. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So hopefully someday. I mean, we'll see. So, so what about how you got involved with Thicker Than Blood then? Uh, was it a pitch that you had or a Dark Horse reached out to you because of your past work with them? Yeah, it was, um, a Dark Horse reached out to me. They uh, asked if I'd be interested. They said, I think it was, they had a, you know, they planned their publishing schedules out pretty far in advance and they had a, they had an AVP slot open and Randy Stradley asked if I would be interested in pitching for it. And so we went out to dinner and just kind of threw some ideas around. And that's where the idea of like a coward on, on a derelict ship sort of trying to survive the two species came up. Yeah. I mean, I, it's something that I've always wanted to do, but I never really, I never really made a push for it, I guess, because I just felt like the stuff that they were doing was so good and it's so sort of outside my wheelhouse. Like I'm not really into military fiction. I'm not, I don't feel like I'm good at it, which is, I think why we ended up with what we ended up with is because I'm like, okay, well, what can I lean into that, that I can do? But yeah, it was just, a, it was just Randy asking me if I was available and interested and I said, yeah. Do you think, was that something that Randy might have considered when he, when he asked you to do it? Yeah, um, probably. Yeah, I mean, I've worked with Randy for years, so he knows sort of what I'm all about. And I think that the nice thing about being in town, too, is that you can meet up or you could before the pandemic, you know, go to dinner and grab a beer every couple of weeks and just say, hey, what do you think of this? And and bounce some ideas around. He knows where I live if I blow a deadline. So that <laughs> that helps, too. So you, did you get reasonably far with the coward ideas? Did you say you actually scripted a couple of issues? I probably wrote a full four issue outline with him. So it was probably like a full page per issue. And it was just a lot of cat and mouse running around. There was a little more like comedy aspect to it. I, I imagined if Sam Rockwell was in an alien movie, you know, it was a character like that I thought would be really fun. Not, not the moon Sam Rockwell. <laughs> no, the, uh, like seven psychopaths Sam Rockwell or the galaxy quest Sam Rockwell, you know, the, uh, this, this, what was this, it? Cr- crewman number five. Yeah. Guy. I die in the first act. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But like I said, I just, I got to the end of the issues and I'm like, there's no reason for this to exist. You know, it's not really adding anything to either franchise and this guy survives, but he doesn't really, he's braver at the end. I don't know. I just, it just didn't, it felt hollow to me. And so I went back and just sure to Randy's frustration. I said, I'm throwing this all out and starting over. And I was, I was just on a walk one day and I was just thinking, I was thinking about the silhouette of a predator and two kids together. Because I remember like back in the 80s again, like when they were doing the Transformers comics, the way that they sort of teased that it was the silhouettes of all of the Autobots, you know, like side by side by side. And it was really intriguing. And so I thought, uh, you know, a predator with a kid on each side of him, like, what is that? Like what that, that to me is sort of like makes me want to know more. And then everything just sort of blew. I, I ran, I ran back home and I typed up an email to Randy and I'm like, what do you think about this? She's 15 and he's eight and he's, you know, he's like, okay, just do it. <laughs> just give me something that I can send to Fox. We've got deadlines to meet. Yeah, come, on. come on. I yeah. really love that dynamic with, you know, the hobbling predator. Yeah. <laughs> in the second yeah. half and, and yeah. how he was just being guided around by these kids. And- yeah. Even the sibling dynamic, the fact that the younger one was an android kind of reminded me of a a recent story that Aaron and I also liked, which was a novel, Alien Echo, Mm -hmm. which was marketed as like the first alien novel geared towards young adults. Oh, interesting. Um, I'm not familiar with that. Yeah. And it was a little late to say spoilers because (laughs) um, the the character is is unaware, though, that their sibling is an android. Oh, okay. In the book. And then they discover that. But it was it was a really well done dynamic in that one. 
too. And they go like in, in that story echo, not to get too into it, but because I get, no, I won't spoil it for you. <laughs> okay, def- okay. Definitely recommend it. They didn't spoil it too much there. No, but that sounds great. Kind of, kind of remind me of, of what you went for with the, the sibling dynamic here a little bit. Yeah, I that I think it was an original idea that you find out Tyler is an android as it goes along. But once I started really thinking about who he was and what his purpose was, it didn't really make sense to hide that from from the rest of the family. Well, that that's become a bit of a trope anyway. So mm-hmm, mm-hmm. to to have him established, you know, who he was within what was it the second page, the third page, yeah, you know, you'd, yeah. you'd already laid it out. Yeah, is is another one of those fresh sort of aspects of this book where it's like. Yeah. Okay, you're not gonna ring me and surprise me later with yeah. an Android head. Yeah. Yeah. Let's crack on. Let's see what you're gonna do <laughs> yeah. different with. Yeah, him. there's no no room to do anything else really either. Like I always have these grand ideas when I start out, and then when I get to page thirty, I'm like, I don't have any room to do any of this other <laughs> stuff. So I got to go back and, and do that. That, that. I mean, that's something else that I mean, Adam and I were talking about the other week. I think is is you know, it tends to be four issue runs. Mm-hmm. Occasionally, you get a five issue run, and I think it's a question I have later in terms of adapting mm-hmm. Predator. Oh. Yeah. By the way, Jeremy was also mm. writing uh, the Predator original screenplay yeah. for Dark Horse as well. Yeah. Um, so we'll, yeah. we'll ask him about that later. Thanks, so- COVID. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, well, yeah, COVID Wait. slash Marvel, I guess. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, in t- in terms of them, we'll, we'll say in terms of, you know, thicker than blood being, mm-hmm. you know, four issue run. Um, how difficult do you find that as a writer to construct that story? It's tough. I mean, you know, like I said, I have all these, like I had written a full backstory for the family and the ship and the predators. And I had all these ideas about, I knew that I wanted the elder predator to get crippled because I really liked the idea of uh, uh, two kids and a hobbled predator against this really badass xenomorph. I just thought that that was great. But originally, the idea was that they use Tyler as bait to lead him into an airlock and then they blast Tyler out into space and as the airlock closes he sticks his arm and his leg into the into the doors and you know so it was a failed plan but when I started really mapping it out I'm like that's you know, that's five pages right there that's <laughs> it's a quarter of an issue I don't I don't have time for that so it's at least for me when I start out I have all these ideas and then it just becomes a game of subtraction like okay well what is the essence of the story and what's the core and what needs to happen and then you just sort of figure out like okay well how many pages do I need you know how many pages do I need to show the xenomorph killing the second predator with the whip? You know, because as a fan, I'm like, I want to see more of that. I want to see more of that fight, you know, mm-hmm. but it's when you want to do the character stuff, you've got to make room for it. And so the action is kind of what takes the takes the hit there. But when I write a script, I sit down and I, I map it out. I, I figure, you know, like this is what happens on page one. Well, I'll take my scenes first. I've got five major pieces of this issue and I've got 20 pages to do it. So, you know, scene one, I can probably do in one or two pages. Scene two is going to need five. And I just do the math until I filled it all out. And I also think a lot about page turn reveals, you know, where you you, you hide something and then when you turn the page it gets right in the reader's face and those are always on an even numbered page and so you know you've got to really think about oh I've got this great moment but I got to make sure it happens on page 8 and not page 7 because if somebody's reading it if it's on page 7 they're going to open the, the book and they're going to see it immediately and so you, you've lost your surprise so it becomes it's mathematic I guess in a way that figuring this stuff out but yeah it becomes a game of just like okay well what can I lose and still keep the essence of the story and what you know what's important that's interesting I hadn't really ever thought about the the notion of writing for your your turns or your spreads and stuff like yeah. that. Mm-hmm. So 
there's challenges in it as a whole of the format rather than just you know your, yeah. your panels and stuff that's, yeah that's interesting. yeah this is what i say when i talk to people about writing comics it's like with movies you're dealing with time you know you've got two hours to do whatever you want to do depending on your budget you can go anywhere all you've got to worry about is just you know hitting your mark and and sticking your landing at the end of that two hours with pros it's it's words it's page count with comics it's it's physical space it's real estate you know you can only fit so many panels on a page and so much information in a panel you know, typically you can do about five panels a page. So you're, you're looking at about 80 to 100 panels an issue, right? Is that how that math works out? 20 times five? No, not even that. Yeah, it's about 100, 80 to 100. So you've really got to be judicious in the choices you make, you know, in terms of the images that you show. And then again, you think about the flow of the storytelling and the rhythm. And you don't want it to be just pedal to the metal start to finish because then it's, you know, even that's just a flat dramatic line. You want it to kind of have ebbs and flows. And, you know, the scene where they're in issue three, where they're pushing the predator into the water, trying to kill him. You know, there's that's high tension. And then they go back to the bar and you have that moment with Tyler and Maria where they sort of reconcile. And it's like, those are two really different rhythms of scenes. And so you've got to be, really be conscious about like how much space you're going to give that. And again, with the surprises, you don't want to show the predator walking up on them on an odd numbered page because you're going to give it away. You want them to hear the sound and then turn and then the reader turns the page and oh, sh- shit, there he is. So I'm a little curious, what's what's the deal um, with the odd and even numbered page? Like are readers so, still likely to turn to... So if you look at... So you've got your, your trade paperback there of Thicker Than Blood, right? Your collection yeah. of Thicker Than yeah. Blood. So if you open it up, you open up the cover and that first page would be page one. Yeah. Right. So you turn the page and that next page is page two. And then that next page is page three. So every odd number page, three, five, seven, they're always going to be on the right side. So every time you turn the page, oh, the information that's on the right side is what your eye is naturally drawn so you're to. You're more likely to see the pages on the right than the ones on the left. Yeah, because, you know, Western reading, we read left to right and our eyes just naturally go that direction. You know, so you try to save, you try not to spoil any big information on the right hand page because, gotcha. you know, it's, I, get, I get you know, it's tricky because sometimes you'll, I'll, I'll sit down and I'll map out. And I've got, oh, five surprises that I want to do in this issue. And you just can't do it, you know, because then you've got to shortchange another scene. Then, then you've got to pick, okay, well, what's the important reveal? They're called reveals. What's the important reveal here that is worth sort of sacrificing something else to get to? And when you and the rest of the creative team started on this, were you aware that it would be Dark Horse's last AVP? Title no, no. I mean, we started this at the end of 2018. Oh. So, yeah, I finished it in 2019. So, I, I don't know if Dark Horse knew, but we had no idea. We had no idea. I really thought this was going to be out in 2019. Well, I found out probably when everybody else did, like early part of this year, that Dark Horse was losing the license and Marvel was taking it over. And again, like I said, I did Dark Horse's last Star Wars one. And I'm like, oh, great. I'm, I'm cursed. <laughs> Don't hire me if you want to keep the license. Did Randy say anything about that? I think I said it to him immediately. I think that he, you know, he was just like, yeah, (laughs) so we'll see. See what's next. That's fair. And one of the reasons we really enjoyed Thicker Than Blood so much was because of how, like we've been discussing, how unlike other Alien and Predator comics it was. And so we wanted to go a little deeper into some of those creative decisions. Straight from the go, it's not typical that this isn't a hunt for the Predators. It's more of a straight up conflict and that Mm -hmm. meant different behavior for them. I was talking to Aaron about this. I was like, oh, weird that they're just going on the ship and just killing everybody. (laughs) But um, Aaron pointed out like, well, that they were in the wrong territory as the father character later describes them. Yeah. So why did you go down that road? Well, I mean, you know, for mechanical reasons, I had to have a reason to get them on the ship and the kids alone against them. So, um, 
the idea was that the this never comes out in the story, but those three predators are related. The elder predator is the father of the other two, mm-hmm. and they're kind of they're not the they're not the top brass. I would say the, the the idea was that they are kind of they're not bad bloods, but they're not they're kind of screw ups. These two younger predators are kind of problem children, I guess. And so they were heading out on their first hunt, which is why they had the xenomorph. Like dad's taking them out. Okay. And the the elder is uh, had this whole idea of like, well, he was disgraced for some reason. He's been kind of demoted and he's out training his his sons to hunt and so they've got this xenomorph and they're on their way out to the planet and they catch this yacht this luxury ship in their territory so they they just they just hit it and the characters the, the names can never come out but the elder predator in the script is named hook and then the one with the whip was splitter and the flamethrower predator is pig iron and so you, if you notice that Splitter, the one with the whip, is the one who goes crazy. Like he's the one who goes to the beach and just starts slaughtering everybody. Yeah. And Pig Iron stays back just to torment the alien because he's a jerk. You know, <laughs> he's not he's not worried about, you know, he's, he doesn't see anybody on the ship as a threat or even worthwhile. He just wants dad and brother out of there. And he's like, OK, now I can start really like messing with this thing because I can't I can't wait to get it. I talked to Randy about that. Like, I don't want to contradict the power structure or the the hierarchy of the predators, you know, in this. I just I I wanted to make sure that it still kind of fit within the behavior because you're right. It's not it's not typical of the way that they act or, or behave or the rules of a situation like this. And part of the thinking of that, too, was that when the elder hook sees Maria and Tyler, you know, in that moment on the beach where they're drowning him, he recognizes something in them that he doesn't even see in his own kids, which is this like honor and bravery that they're willing to, you know, the fact that they're willing to like drag him away and try to make a deal with him, I think is really goes a long way with with his opinion of them, even though he's he tries to kill them at one point, you know, he breaks their stick and he tries to attack them. And uh, yeah, I just I really tried to think about like the family dynamics of all of the characters in this and how I can really play into that. And that was one of those things that like had to go when I realized I only had 80 pages. Well, going back to the conceptual phase of that, then how were you planning to sort of convey that stuff? Because, you know, traditionally going back to Randy, for example, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, he, he conveys what the predators are doing through narration from the human characters yeah. and putting mm-hmm. it into context that way. How how would you have done it with this one? How, how had you got the page space? I don't know. I really don't know. I, I think it would have had to, you know, maybe it would have been when Tyler interfaces with their ship and he gets some information about them. You know, yeah. he figures out like, OK, this is where they were headed. They're all going off to this planet to release this thing. I really try to keep in mind, like, what do these characters know? You know, like, if you did a narration thing, it would have to be after the fact, and it would kind of give away that if it's Maria telling the story, yeah, like, Maria's telling the story a year later, you know that she's going to make it. So I think that was one of the things that went early on. I'm like, okay, I don't, this is a complicated idea. I don't know how I'm going to convey it. And they, you know, obviously, I don't want to do like translated dialogue with the predators, you know, like, I'm so disappointed in you kids. (laughs) You're a disgrace to the family. Yeah, yeah. No, but that that is certainly an interesting dynamic because that would have been completely different as well. Yeah. Um, completely untouched kind of territory for, I, for what... I, yeah, and I sort of saw the whole thing as kind of a redemption arc for the Elder, too. You know, like, he kind of regains his honor a little bit in, like, helping these kids and killing this this uh, xenomorph throughout. You know, he loses his own family in it, but... I, I like to think that, like, at the start of the story, he's kind of this broken, older predator that his life hasn't gone the way that he has wanted it to go. And at the end of it, he's like, I still have honor. I can I can leave with my head kind of held high. 
And I gotta say, I do love the um, the call it good line. Yeah, yeah, yeah thanks. Yeah, yeah. That was good well, and too, like he calls it good, and then he's out of there. Like I, I that was that came up in the writing. Like he calls it good, and then he sucks the ramp up, and the yeah. kids are just like almost like, sucked out into space. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's like, all right, we're done. I don't care what happens to you after this. So when it came to characters, one of the elements that we were particularly fascinated with was Tyler. He's introduced mm-hmm. as someone who will never grow up, a perpetual child trapped in an immortal body. But as mm-hmm. the stories progress we learn he's not so immortal. He's failing and his owners, his parents are just going to be rid of him. Can you tell us a little bit about that character arc? Yeah, I really am happy with how that came out. And again, I had this whole backstory with the family written out that ma- let me let me see how far back to go. So mom and dad are we're getting a divorce like this. Yeah, they, you, this was, you, could, you could feel that tension. Yeah, yeah. So what had happened is before Maria was born, they had another son who died in an accident that was kind of their fault. And so they bought Tyler to replace him. Like he's supposed to be this companion, sort of AI-ish, you know, like you can have a little boy in your family. And it didn't work. Like it didn't save their marriage. It didn't help. So they decided to, you know, they made the classic mistake of like, well, we'll have a child together, another child, and that'll save our marriage. And it didn't. It was Maria. So Tyler, in a way, is her older brother. Like he was there to raise her. He's basically just a companion. That's his function is to just be a playmate. And so he raised her from infancy. And yeah, mom and dad just see him as another piece of the ship. Like mom especially started giving him when 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 Maria outgrows him, starts giving him other jobs that he's not really built for. You know, he's not really built to inventory the ship and run all these systems. But he's a you know he's another piece of machinery on the ship that she can she can put to use. And so that's where I wanted a lot of the tension from Maria to come from. Is she knows her parents parents are, you know, it's a, it's a broken marriage and they're neglectful. And she, in her mind, she thinks they like Tyler more because he's perfect. You know, like she doesn't know all this, all the stuff that's going on with him. He's outdated and he's, he's, I, I just he's really like the idea. thought himself to death as well. Hasn't yeah, you? I think absolutely. That. Yeah. I had it early on. Another thing that didn't make it is that I really wanted Tyler to feel obligated to, to rescue all the cartography data that their father had collected in this space. You know, like dad died for this information. We should, if we're going to survive, we got it. This is how we're going to help dad survive is if we go get all his map data. And so I, I had imagined a scene where they go back to the bridge and he starts up loading the data and he says, okay, well, this is going to wipe out my personality because I don't have enough space for everything. And that was going to be the moment where she's like, whoa, wait, wait, what do you mean? And then he would say like, well, I'm, I'm failing, you know, like my cognitive functions are failing. I don't have enough memory left. If we're going to save dad's data, it's going to, it's going to wipe me out. But yeah, I like, I really like the idea of a character that has kind of outlived his purpose and his usefulness, but is still trying, is still like looking for a new reason to exist. And he loves Maria. And, you know, depending on how optimistic or cynical you are, he eventually will become her son, you know, or her grandson, you know, he's not going to age, but she will, she will grow up and have her own family and he'll be the playmate to her. Her children or grandchildren or the other direction is she'll just never be able to fix him and he's toast <laughs> depending on, on how you want to read that but yeah i just like once that dynamic kind of came into my head i just thought like it's going to make his last stand against the xenomorph that much more poignant you know where he's sort of he's fulfilling his destiny in that moment like I've, i'm built to protect you and i'm going to do it yeah i just i just love characters that are just outside of their depth and they just keep trying even though they know it's the the odds are impossible it was surprising for me when the point comes up in the story that the mother was was going to sell him off because the moment right before the mother character gets killed where she's like, I love you both. Yeah. And she seemed hesitant to kind of send him out there while the whole family escaped. So I was yeah. wondering like, oh, was she having like second thoughts about that or? Yeah, I think so. I think also there's this dynamic sometimes with parents where they kind of know they're bad parents, you know, <laughs> and they... um 
this is not a generalization, but I think sometimes in like broken relationships, I think in that moment, mom was like, I kind of have to make up for some bad behavior. You know, they've been neglectful of Maria and, you know, and she, they are her, Maria is her daughter. So there is, you know, she does love her. But yeah, I think, uh, you know, and maybe the idea evolved as it went along. The, the, the downside with comics too is that you're publishing the material as you're writing it. So issue one was done when I was writing issue three. And had I to do it over again, I probably would have gone back and altered that scene a little bit. Mm. Um, you know, having, having seen how the scene with the, the reconciliation between Maria and Tyler plays out. Yeah, yeah, gone back and maybe tweaked the, the the last stand with mom a little bit, but sort of the nature of nature of comics. Yeah, it was an interesting plot um, point that this was like a family run business. This yeah, space yacht, yeah. and that kind of made me yeah. curious. Like, well, how did they like? How did this family get the resources to acquire this yacht? How long have they been running this business? Like, it, yeah. it just made me curious about the whole history of this thing. Yeah, well, it's mom's ship. Mom's the captain of the ship. And another thing, they weren't just getting divorced, but they were going to sell the ship at the end of the. This was going to be their last voyage. Oh, I see. And then she was going to go off and work for a, a tour company or something. But yeah, I just imagine she probably was a tour guide like earlier in life and was just doing really well and probably started her own tour company. And then that just expanded from there to where she was able to buy her own ship. You know, and then dad's a he's a cartographer. So it makes sense that he'd want to go out with her and map new areas, planets. Mm. Do you typically sort of come up with that in-depth of backstory while you're working on your comics? Because mm -hmm. I mean... While reading this, you could feel mm -hmm. the, the sort of, you know, the history there, you know, even if you'd conceived it and couldn't fit it in, you could yeah. feel it. Oh, thank and you. Yeah. That's not something, that's not a sensation you always get yeah. when, when reading things. So is that typical of your process? Yeah. I think I do a lot. I call it sort of working outside the frame. Like what's, what's happening outside the story that people aren't going to see, but it's still going to inform how the characters behave. A lot of, a lot of my process is just asking, asking myself questions, you know, like who are these kids? Okay. One of them's a Android. Like, well, why? Why is he an Android? Why would he be an Android on the ship? Why would the parents need that? And it's just answering those questions as you go. And then once you, once you sort of have that bigger picture that informs like well how would these characters behave in this situation you're like knowing that history knowing that the predator is the father the elders the father to these other two or that mom is going to sell tyler you know that informs how they interact with each other and how they interact with the situation and then that makes it better for me as a writer because then when i start to figure out how things are going to go i know how they're going to react you know i know what they're going to say to each other so it's a it's an enormous amount of work but i think that it makes the story better for me like i i enjoy that kind of like depth to it mm -hmm. because otherwise it just becomes plot points you know it just becomes yeah. Yeah. characters going from a to b and and sort of verbalizing to each other what they're doing and why they're doing it and I, as a reader i just don't that's just kind of boring to me well when the, the world building of these kind of things is, is one of the things that you know really appeals mm -hmm. particular stories the ones with good world building whether it be lore of the universe or just what's motivating and informing mm -hmm. what's happening on the page those ones where you you can sense that are the ones that i think are most satisfying yeah and they resonate like all of that all of that stuff for me like you know being a 15 year old that's kind of angry at your parents and you know that's that's it's a, it's a universal thing that's something that i really try to do is like just find some emotional honesty in these stories that can connect with people as readers that they can recognize a little of themselves or or maybe even just i i always look at my writing and my storytelling as trying to work out my own emotional problems in a way or like helping other people work out there you. yeah yeah or maybe maybe i've worked something out and i can convey it in a way that'll help somebody else and so that's well, sort of my starting point always 
But even even the notion of Tyler as this immortal, never growing up kind of thing is is resonant. I mean, I don't know about you guys, but I'm still 18 in my head. And oh, I'm, yeah. never gonna, I'm never going <laughs> to yeah. grow up from that. Yeah. So yeah. that that's a very familiar sensation as well. Yeah, absolutely. Because I have that feeling. And I also wanted to show the downside of that, you know, that it's like Tyler is immortal, but there are drawbacks to that. You know, he does have limitations and maybe it's not the fantasy you think that it is when you finally get it. But yeah, I mean, I I look in the mirror and I'm like, what happened? You're not 18. This is I, I have that same feeling. So one of, one of the things you've already spoke about is this mental image of the a predator with the two kids mm-hmm. next to him. So, you know, the, the team up between predators and human characters is one of those staples of, of the concept. It, it just is. And thicker than blood, you know, you did it with this very different, this very different style with the kids. Mm-hmm. So why was that mental image the one you zoned in on? Why, why, why that road? Well, I think it just made me want to know more. Like, it just made me want to know what is this about? Like, again, because, it, you know, you hear AVP and the, the immediate expectation is Marines and armies of xenomorphs and predators. And I just really wanted to do something that when people I, I was really hoping the kids would make it on the covers because I really wanted when people saw it to be like, what is this? Why? This is different than anything I've ever seen. And then again, like I said, I'm just not good at writing military stuff. So it was like, OK, well, what can I you know, what can I do? But yeah, it was really just that I like the idea of throwing an image out there that made me or a reader go, I don't know what this is, but I want it. I want to know what it is. I want to know more about this. I want to know why. I want to know why the predators with these two kids. I want to know who these two kids are. Yeah, I think that was that was just it. And then from there, it just became asking a lot of questions. Who are they? What are they about? You know, why? Um, why, why are they on the ship? Why is this predator teaming up with them? That seems crazy. Just yeah. to touch on the covers, I, I really love the covers yeah. that Chun Lo did for this. Were there any ever uh, plans for variant covers? For uh, not that I know of, I don't know. Oh. I Randy had shown me the cover designs, and I was like, "Oh, this is great." What about the kids, though? I kept saying, I'm like, <laughs> "What about the kids?" And wisely, he was very wise. He's like, "That's not going to sell this book." Like well, afterward, Tyler still makes it onto the the trade yeah. cover. Yeah, and man, you, what you a, can't what a you can't thing. really tell he's a kid in in that yeah. particular artwork, yeah. though. So yeah, I think yeah, I mean, they made the right call on that mm-hmm. one. When Tyler and Maria are aboard the Predator ship and he's trying to interface with it, Tyler mentions something else being in there. I was wondering if there was more to that statement than just the ship's countermeasures. Yeah, I think the idea was just that there was something in there that to keep. It was just countermeasures. It was just something that would attack any sort of hacking or anything. Any Anything that wasn't a Predator trying to control the ship would, you know, give it feedback. There was a moment where I really wanted Tyler to kind of talk to the ship, you know, and I think, again, that would have got into the more of the backstory with the Predators. But by the time I got to that scene, I'm like, there's just no space for anything. Like, I need to find a way for them to release the Xenomorph. And so this is how they're going to do it. Like, he's just going to he's going to get shocked by this thing and he's just going to unlock everything because they're trying to unlock the ship. You know, that that was the whole purpose there is like to, to release their ship. Yeah, just countermeasures, basically. Just a reason for him to panic and start letting things go, opening doors and dropping chains. And all these extra yeah. plot elements you're mentioning make it makes me <laughs> wish it was a five-issue series. <laughs> me too. Like, for me, like I feel like that's the perfect length. Like yeah. Sometimes the stories like Defiance that go more longer format than that, how many issues mm-hmm. was that, Aaron? Was that like 10, 12? 12, I mm-hmm. think. Those can kind of drag on for, for us yeah. a little bit. But... um. No, I think this could have used one more issue, especially with yeah, everything you're telling us here. Yeah, I'm kind. Of, I'm kind of curious for a novel, to be honest. Oh yeah, do you, do you want to do some prose, Jeremy? <laughs> oh get yeah, absolutely. Yeah. We, we can we can set you up with the editor at Titan. <laughs> okay, yeah. I mean, I just I write short stories and stuff on my own, but haven't actually dove into a novel yet. Well, if if you if you're wondering if you want to make a start, all right, all right, I like it. Thicker than blood. Yeah. To go back to comics as a mm-hmm. uh, as a visual medium here. Mm-hmm. 
In terms of the visual story, Thicker Than Blood has... Mm-hmm. A visual team, sorry. Thicker mm-hmm. Than Blood has some stellar credits, let's be honest. Oh, yeah, yeah. Doug Wheatley on lines, Rain Burrito yeah. on colours. Yeah, yeah. We couldn't have asked for a better team for Dark Horse's yeah. ADD comics. I know, I agree. I, I, I Again, I just feel so lucky and so fortunate. Yeah, I came up with the idea and I had some artists. And I don't know, maybe it's this sort of like false humility in myself but i was like well i just hope they get somebody good you know and when doug said rand or when randy said doug wheatley i was like no way there's no way doug's gonna be busy there's no way this is gonna work out and yeah when they they, man doug is those two rain and doug together are just phenomenal did you mostly know Doug from from his Star Wars work? Then, yeah, or? yeah. He and Randy had worked on a lot of Star Wars together, and then they did a um, King Tiger, which is a kind of a superhero miniseries that Randy wrote together. Yeah, I've known Doug since two thousand three or four when he was working on Star Wars, and just I've always been just so amazed. He's just so talented, and then to, to team him up with Rain, who's also amazing. I yeah, I I was pinching myself. I, I even got to a point where like, oh man, now I got to live up to this, you know? Like now I got to do something. <laughs> really worthwhile which was also good for me because i really wanted to push like the the locations i really wanted the locations to be interesting and different and when i knew doug was on board i'm like well he can do anything you know i don't have to like work around him and yeah i just am so happy and so lucky to have teamed up with them so i i know we i know it tends to vary from you know series to series so mm-hmm. in terms of your experience with thicker than blood how much collaboration was actually going off between you and those two? And did you personally have much input from the visual side? Yeah. So, um, Doug, Randy, and I are all friends. We email each other, you know, all throughout the week. And so I would send Doug also in my scripts. I, I try to make my scripts really conversational with the artist where I say, Hey, here's, I really try to show like, well, here's the emotional context or here's the point of this scene. But if you, you're the visual thinker, Doug. So if you can come up with a better way to do this, if you want to add panels or take panels away or move things around, go for it because I trust you. And so the way the process would work is I would send in a script and then Randy would read it and then they would send it to Fox and Fox would approve it. And then they send it to Doug and Doug would do thumbnails. He would do like breakdowns of the pages. So, you know, really simple drawings, which for Doug are still amazing. Yeah, he'd send them to me and Randy, Randy and I and. Yeah, you would just go through and you would look. Sometimes you would see that I would see that maybe I didn't convey something very clearly in the script. I could notice it in Doug's thumbnails or his breakdowns. And I could say, Oh, hey, Doug, I meant for the, I meant for the predator to be in a different spot in the room over here because on the next page, they've got to do this other action. So it was really collaborative that way. And it was really nice. And Doug could email me whenever he wanted to, uh, if he had a question. The scene at the end in the arboretum with the flamethrower, Doug had some questions about the choreography of it. And so we would just go back and forth on like, okay, well, the tree that she gets slammed into should be back here because it's got to catch on fire. And that was really nice. You do, I don't always get that luxury when I'm working on a licensed book. A lot of times the experience is I'll write a script and I'll send it in and then I won't see anything until the comic comes out, which could be months and months later. And I'll, I'll flip through it. And, you know, sometimes I'll work with artists for whom English is not their first language. And so the scripts get translated for them. And so you see like things get lost. In, yeah. I mean, sometimes it comes back better, but sometimes you see things just got lost in translation. Yeah. So it's like, okay, well, this isn't quite, you know, I, I don't mean this to crap on anybody because I think everybody's really talented, but you'll see like some context gets lost or like when you're trying to set up a moment that's going to pay off later, that will get lost in the translation. So it was super some, nice. Some of the complexity of the English. Yeah. Exa- oh, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And even in the writing of the script, I have to be really careful with the language that I use because I don't want them to be confused about when you describe a character wearing a ball cap, you know, like we understand what that is, but somebody in, in Brazil might not understand that lingo, you know, like a ball cap. What is that? Like, they have a ball with a lid on it? Like, I don't know. So you have to be careful of that as well. But after that, I didn't get to see 
I got to see Doug's pages, but I didn't get to see Rain's colors after issue two until the book came out. So that was a surprise for me too. I finally got a copy of the book and I saw the last half of it. I was like, oh man. Oh man, this is giving me chills. It's so good. But there's not a lot. I can't, I don't, I'm not a colorist. I don't really know color theory. So there's not a lot of input I could have done anyway on that that I think would have made any difference. Those guys are so talented. I just trust what they're doing. Talking about like some of your writing mentality, I guess. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I understand this is a completely different visual medium mm-hmm. uh, than, than say films. But I mean, when, when I think about comics, you know, I do sort of put it in film terms. You yeah, know, it's do, visual. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do, do you ever, you know, while you're writing, have to sort of fight the idea of treating yourself like a director of a film? Or do you know, you, does that yeah. sort of inform what you're doing? I, I as used you're to. Yeah, I used to. I think that that comes from not trusting myself or the or the artists or the readership i used to early on when i was writing comics i would i would give camera directions i totally would i would you know like low angle you know looking up with the light coming in from this side and and i just found that that really frustrated the artists and it actually hurt the story because you know the artist is going to look at it and they're going to go like well the blocking here doesn't make any sense because you're not thinking visually about the space you're just thinking about the image in the panel the only time that it really comes up is if there is a specific, there's the moment in the, again, in the Arboretum where Maria is, everything's on fire and she's against the tree and the sprinklers come on. And I really wanted those pages to mirror each other because she passes out when the predator is standing over her and the sprinklers are on. And then she wakes up again when he's brought her and Tyler to the, you know, to the, to the lifeboat. And those layouts are identical. Like I really liked the idea of like the repetition of those images. So there are things I'll call out for that. Or if, you know, the anime that Tyler liked to watch, like we get that, that image repeats three times. Like you see it on page one and then you see it again when Tyler has his last stand against the xenomorph. It's exactly the same staging. And then you see it in Tyler's dream on the last page. You know, like I like the idea of the repetition of that. And then the other thing mechanically is if you've got two characters in a panel talking to each other, you need to make sure that the character who speaks first is on the left because their balloon has to come before the character who responds. So that's something I always have to keep in mind, like when I'm having a conversational scene of like, okay, who's on the left, who's on the right? And I will often remind the artist like, okay, Maria has the first line of dialogue, so make sure she's standing to the left of Tyler in this. But otherwise, I've just found that like, just let the artist figure out the angles and the, and the camera and the lighting because they're so much better at it than I am. Again, I feel like my job is to convey the emotion of it and convey the sort of the what's supposed to be happening and what's happening internally with the characters. But I'm pretty hands off when it comes to, you know, staging and directing because, yeah, it's they're, they're so much. They're just so good. They're just so much better at it than I am. And I'm always excited. I get it back and I'm like, oh, this is so much better. This is so much better than what I thought it was going to be. And just touching back on what you said about the, the ship's environments, I thought that was another real strong suit yes. of, of this, um, this series was just the, the varying locations in the ship. Mm-hmm. You know, you had the beach, uh, you had this like mm-hmm. park atrium, you had this bar and lounge. Like there were so many distinct locations in the ship that made it really just visually interesting. Yeah. Thanks. That was something else too that I, I always think about when I'm, cause it is a visual medium and I think about what is, what's going to be visually, visually interesting, obviously, but also like what is the artist going to have fun drawing? Like I don't want them to be spending 80 pages just drawing darkness you know or just drawing characters just talking against a that's when you get the lazy coloring background yeah yeah and so i really like i knew doug was amazing and i just thought okay i'm gonna give him and again it, it also like creates that question in the reader of like what is why are we on a beach like what is this why is the sky suddenly digitized 
And the hard part was that with that is I really had to keep track of sort of the layout of the ship. You know, I had to keep in mind like, okay, well, the beach is on the bottom deck and then the lounge is above that. And then the atrium is in the front and then dad's lab, because dad is like selfish. He put his lab on the most beautiful section of the ship, you know, so that he can work on his experiments when he's got a view out the front of the ship and then he can go overlook this beautiful park. And, and also I had, that was part choreography too. Like, how do I get the xenomorph out of the lab and into the, into the park? You know, okay, well, they've got to be connected. And sometimes I would, when I would send a script in, Doug would be like, okay, well, how do they get to, how do they get to the lounge from the lounge to the lifeboat? And I would have to go back and be like, okay, that is that up or down? Like, which way is this elevator going? So I, I thank you for that. I appreciate that that, that worked out. Cause again, that was another thing that I'm like, man, people are going to really like this or it's going <laughs> to, they're going to roast me. Unfortunately, the situation with COVID and the printer shutting down meant not all of it thicker than blood was released as single issues. And instead, we were waiting for the release of the trade. I'm guessing the answer is going to be yes here. But did the pandemic impact your work on the series in, in any other way? Well, not mine. I mean, I had written it. I'd finished it back in 2019. So the story was all done before the pandemic. Mm-hmm. I don't know if Doug was drawing, which issue Doug was drawing at the beginning of the year or the end of 2019. Might have been issue four. Anyway, yeah, so I think it hit Doug a lot harder than it hit me. I think that they had nobody of obviously nobody really knew what was going on with the printers and the schedules. And then we're they're running up against this hard deadline apparently of Marvel taking it over in January of twenty twenty one. So it's like thirty first of November December. Yeah, exactly. So it's like we've got to get this thing out. And so there was I remember it was in April when Randy told me about the Predator, the the original screenplay project getting taken off. And he said, I don't know if we're going to be able to finish Thicker Than Blood. And I was just heartbroken because I'm like, this is so good. You know, I want people to see Doug's work. And so it's bittersweet because it's like, okay, it's out. You know, we made it. We made it like right under the wire, but it's going to go out of print like immediately. Like it's comes out in December 2nd or whatever. And it's December 31st. They can't publish it anymore. So it's get it, get it while you can. Well, Marvel is already on it with the reprints of the older yeah. stuff from Dark Horse. I'm sure they'll get around so, to the newer hopefully. stuff. Yeah, I mean, again, that happened to me with Star Wars. I did the Darth Maul thing and it came out at the end of the year. And then I don't think they reprinted it for like five years after that. So it was a, it was a little bit of a wait. But yeah, I mean, I'm happy it's out. Like it, it's given the choice, but that was rough, especially with issue two coming out and like knowing what was coming. And, you know, I would go on online and read reactions. And again, everybody's like, Oh, I hate Maria. She's so terrible. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I don't know where the story's going. And I'm like, Oh, if only you could see, you know, like yeah. hopefully, hopefully you'll get to see where it goes. The reactions on our forum, I've just noticed a few of the first people who have said they've mm-hmm. read it. They've been pretty positive. Good. Like, uh, one of our forum members, Russ840 said, I have to say, other than the original AVP and possibly Eternal, this has got to be the best AVP. Comic oh, man. Wow. Yeah, that's so, flattering. I probably yeah. agree with that. This yeah. is, this I, is I would right agree with there. that. I would yeah. agree yeah, with that. Yeah, top, top three easily. Ah, man. Shucks. Thanks, guys. <laughs> <laughs> it, it was pretty strange, kind of touching back on the single issue thing, though, that Dark Horse continued on with Alien, the original screenplay, <laughs> in single issues rather than paperback. It's like you couldn't finish I, the two single issues for this but you're doing a full four single yeah issues i don't know one, what right? that maybe they just had that one more in the can like maybe they had I more issues think going. it was a business thing so mm. when they adapted william gibson's comic that was the best-selling alien title that dark horse oh. had had for a long time mm-hmm. i didn't know so, that it was one of the things I did during <laughs> during yeah. the lockdown. Was I was like, I've always wondered how well these actually sell, and went through all the. Um, I didn't know uh, they published the sales charts. Yeah, yeah, 
yeah, yeah, you can find them. Yeah. So I, I, I think they were just trying to hopefully replicate that same financial success yeah, because it was the same kind of thing, basically. Yeah, that was a priority. It sounds like just get that one out. And they, they maybe had a longer lead time. So there were more issues mm-hmm. ready to go. Mm-hmm. So it, it would have done Predator as well, then. I, mean, I know. Oh, oh man. The, that would have um, yeah, we'll been archives type thing. Yeah. We'll, get, we'll get to that Predator thing. That would have been so good. So in, in terms of Thicker Than Blood, when it all said and done, you know, the, the, mm-hmm. the book's out, it's in our hands, you've you've seen it come together, hands are washed, there's nothing mm-hmm. else you can do. Mm-hmm. What was the most satisfying aspect of this job for you, of this run? Like seeing Doug execute the story so well was really satisfying. Like every time I start a story, I ha- I always have a target that I want to hit. And in this case, I really wanted the relationship between the kids to like resonate. And I feel like, you know, with Doug's help, I, that that really landed really well. And that's really, that's really rewarding to me. And also just having a book at the end of it that I can hold and give my family and show my friends and like, yeah, this, this exists. We did it. We pulled it off. And again, it's like a dream working on these franchises. Like I can't even tell you how excited 11 year old me annoying the hell out of everybody with their aliens plot, like <laughs> to go back and say like, you're going to contribute to this. You know, you're going to become a part of this. Like, I have to step back and be like, man, I can't believe it. I can't believe that, like, I get to do this. So I, I just think from start to finish, it's been, it's been, real, you know, the delays in the publishing are, were a bummer, obviously. But yeah, and, you know, this is hopefully a story that's going to stand up that, like you guys say, it's not, it's like nothing else. So, you know, a few years from now, if I ever am having a conversation with somebody and I say, oh, yeah, I wrote, uh, I wrote some AVP and they say which one. And I'm like, oh, the one on the, on the ship with the kids. They'll know exactly which one it is. You know, they'll know. I don't have to say, oh, it's the, you know, the third one with the Marines that, that I, <laughs> you know, not, not to knock that stuff because I love it. I mean, it's, it's kind of what we clamor for in terms yeah, of yeah. the theatrical thing. It's like, okay, give us our colonial marines fucking yeah. shit up with the aliens and predators. Yeah, yeah. Then go do your other stuff, please. Yeah, absolutely. So on the reverse of that one then, you know, what was the most challenging part of working on Thicker Than Blood? Again, I think just I'm pretty self-critical. Like working on anything, I'm just always like, oh, this is no good. Like you spend so much time with it, you start to lose sight of what it is. And so a lot of times I would send the script in. And because I had so much more story that I wanted to do, I always felt like everything was a compromise. And so I would send it in and I'd be like, oh, this is like 70% of what I wanted to do. I hope it's good. I hope it works out. And then again, just not being able to get to that stuff. Like you said, it would have been good if to have that extra issue to kind of dig into more of the dynamics with the predators. And yeah, just being able to do more, I think would be would have been nicer. But you know, I'm happy with how it came out. I'm, I'm grateful that it's the way that it is. But yeah. And AVP is a concept that people have always seemed to appreciate more when it comes to the comics or the games. Mm-hmm. As far as the movies go, do you feel that it's just better suited to those other outlets or have the films just not had the chance to do it justice? I just don't think they've done it justice. I just I think that, you know, not getting into anybody's heads, but uh, of the people making it, but it just seems like they look at it like like an amusement park ride or something. You know, it's like, oh, it's just two monsters that we can throw against each other and do just cool stuff. And they, there's not a lot of, you know, I think if you really got into the into the hierarchy and the mythology of both franchises, you could do so much. You could really like, yeah, I don't know. I don't know why they think that it's... they just go for like the most surface version of both of these properties, it seems like. And the human characters are never really that that deep or well-developed in it either. So there's not a lot to really latch on to. But, you know, I, I always feel like there's hope, you know, like whoever the next director is or the next writer, maybe they'll take it. You know, a Darren Aronofsky AVP would be incredible. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it just it, it just really seems like you put it in the right hands and it's going to be spectacular. 
Yeah. Well, hopefully. I mean, I didn't expect us to be getting another Predator movie so soon. I know. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe they'll they'll give AVP another shot. I would love to see that. Yeah, me too. What do you think of that? This the announcement of that new Predator movie coming out? We're really excited for it. I mean, both Aaron and I have always Mm -hmm. wanted one set in the past. Yeah. And I think that would be a perfect opportunity to kind of do the same thing with Predator as you did with like Alien and Alien Isolation, like Mm -hmm. make the Predator scary again. Yeah. Yeah. ancient uh, human history setting it could be really yeah i'm with you that sounds great i'm still waiting for that avp anime though i'm, st- I'm still hanging on yeah for that. <laughs> yeah do you know anything yeah. about that any any status on when that's just everything we've yeah. heard it was that it was pretty much finished but due to some licensing issue with netflix and and mm. disney fully acquiring studios i mean it has to come out some some way yeah. I'm I'm so like, frustrating you have this fully finished series yeah like, you just throw it in on, the dumpster like what yeah. <laughs> sitting on money there and that's something we've always wanted to see too yeah the anime yeah i've read about that it just sounds so so great but avp is the concept and predator i think mm-hmm. suits suits the format in terms mm-hmm. of you know the, the stylistic nature that they can be done mm-hmm. hopefully fingers crossed yeah yeah and now moving on to that Predator story, as well as Thicker Than Blood, you were penning Dark Horse's first dip into bringing yeah. alternate versions of the Predator franchise into comic form with Predator, the original screenplay. And we understand that all issues had actually been written. Yeah. And I think that one of the questions that everyone is thinking now is what are the chances that Marvel will actually publish this? Man, I hope. I think uh, Patrick Blaine, the artist, I think he was almost done with issue three. So, I mean, there's there's material out there. It's five issues like the other ones. It's really up to Marvel. I have no idea like what their plans are or I mean, obviously, they're they're recollecting the Dark Horse stuff. But like you said, it was the the alien original screenplay or the, uh, the alien three. William Gibson is such a big seller. It seems like Marvel would be interested in picking something like that up. I sort of get the sense, though, that like when a new publisher takes over, they kind of want to do their own thing at first. You know, like they've probably got their own. They probably have an editor who's excited about their, the program and doesn't want to latch onto the past too much. I mean, I'm just guessing here, but nobody's been in contact with me about any of it. So I don't know. Would they even need to be? Not really. I guess, yeah, I guess the scripts are done. I mean, in the, if they just, they would have to get in touch with Patrick, the artist again, and have him just pick up where he left off. So it's a weird situation, you know, yeah. it's, it's a strange one. So the, the, the huge appeal of seeing projects like, like the original screenplay is in how they differ from the finished, mm-hmm. finished film that we know and love. Now, whether that's little things, like in this case, you know, Dutch's... Although you never replied to me to tell me if this was... Yeah, I was saving it. So the script that you sent me is dated July 1985. Um, The script that I was working on was dated September 84. And it's called Hunters. It's plural. And it is Matheny. Yeah, Dutch is Matheny in it. Okay. I skimmed through this morning the the link that you sent me, and the one that I was working on is actually quite a bit different. Even more so because that yeah. was that was still a fair bit different from the the, the one that we have on the website. Still a mm-hmm. fair bit different from from the finished film. So yeah. you know what, this might now turn into a Jeremy. What do you remember about that script? <laughs> well, episode? I'll, I'll say this. You know, I skimmed the the link that you sent me, so I didn't. I don't know. You know what I'm saying might actually be in there, but in the version that I was working off of, they kind of imply that Matheny has PTSD and that he maybe not fit to be leading this mission and they imply that you know Anna the character is not in the version that I have at all but Matheny has these flashbacks to this mission gone wrong in Beirut where he was working with the Israeli Defense Force so I, du- I really dug into that, this, these, this idea of Matheny kind of being this broken man on this mission. And there was also this great subplot about this strained relationship that he had with his father. And 
I know, I know. I don't know where all that stuff went. So there, there's a flashback in it where his, he's a boy, he's 12 or 13, and his father is taking him hunting and he's wounded a deer. And his dad is making him, you know, you've got to put it out of its misery. You've got to kill it. But man, there was just like, there was like depth and resonance to it that I just was like, oh man, people are going to lose their minds over this. So in, in terms of, of you taking that and adapting it and, and mm-hmm. reshaping it, what were some of your favorite differences from a narrative point of view? Was, was well, it that depth of character for? It was all of those flashbacks. It was flashbacks. all of those. That I went back and I, I asked them if I could expand on the flashbacks of him and his father and the mission in Beirut that went wrong to kind of like play into this PTSD that he has. So that's what I was excited about. The first issue actually opened with him and his dad on that hunting trip to kind of bookend with the ending of it. And they were so great. They, you know, I would send them these ideas of like, cause I didn't want to, I didn't want to add anything that wasn't there, but I wanted to kind of expand what was. And when you say they were talking like Fox. Fox. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you didn't, Fox you didn't communicate Horse. with the Thomas brothers or anything like that. No, no, it was all through, I don't know if they have any ownership in the script at this point, but yeah, it was all through, through Dark Horse and Fox. A, lo- a lot of the, the two that we've seen, you know, Alien and, and Alien 3, were relatively more straightforward mm-hmm. adaptations of, of, mm-hmm. of that script. Alien 3's thing was maybe an omission of a scene, an earlier death. Mm-hmm. Did you sort of juggle this one around a bit more in terms of strengthening the narrative core of, of the story? Yeah, a little bit. I moved... I think in the draft that I read, you get the majority of the flashback information about Matheny when he's in the mud after he's gone over the the waterfall and he's covered in the clay and he passes out and he has these fever dreams about his past. And so that's where you get, you get a lot of the information. And I just asked if I could take those out and move them around in the story, you know, again, like open with the father and tease the Beirut stuff a little bit more before you get to that point. I had five issues with this one. So there was a little more room to play. But, you know, in the, in the case of, of situations like this, you have to decide what to cut because you don't have enough space to do a full, like, two-hour movie in it. And the first thing to go are, are just the action sequences. You know, you just find a way to condense them down because you could very easily have, like, a 15 or 20-page sequence of Matheny and the Predator sort of cat and mousing around. So you just have to decide, like, well, how can I convey that in a small amount of space? You know, and do we really have to show them going into like three different caverns? Can that still happen in one cavern? Yeah. You know what I mean? So it's as a reader, you don't know what you're missing. You don't know what wasn't there, but you still get that sort of visceral feeling of, you know, the action and the, and the, the intent. Yeah. Yeah. And the intensity of it. I think you kind of got into our next question there. Um, oh, yeah. You know, like as you were describing, the pacing is, is just a really important thing to nail. I mean, you've got a script with nearly two hours worth of pages and you got to make that work as a five issue run, which is about 50 minutes worth of reading time. So I guess it's just like condensing things where you can, especially yeah. in terms of the action or. Yeah, there's a lot of scenes in it where the, the soldiers are kind of just marching around, you know, go, like going from place to place. So you figure out like, well, can you combine two of those scenes, you know, because they're going from like point A to point B and they're having a conversation conversation or the scene with the scorpion where they stick the knife in the scorpion happens in one spot. But maybe if those characters are interacting in a different place, can you combine all of that? So you still get those moments, but they just they just happen together, if that makes sense, you know, because then you can save yourself. Okay, I just save five pages there. I can devote to, you know, them realizing that they've been set up, you know, I can devote a little more space to that when they find the helicopter. And so yeah, it's just decisions like that. From from a visual point of view, with this thing, uh, with this with the original screenplay, is is your writing it? You know, mm-hmm. picturing it out in your head. What would have been 
what what were the more interesting sort of visual moments in your head while you were doing this? Is there any that stick out as really striking because of their differences to the original? Or yeah, well, I think the approach that I took to it is I really you know I made sure it was set in 1984 and I wanted it to feel like a 1984 movie. So that meant really great special like like special effects like uh, I don't know what they call it not CGI but the like the natural effects and so the practical effects the practical effects yeah so I really had fun with the kills with the predators kills. Because in the early draft, he the Predator just kind of has a javelin kind of thing that it uses to kill everybody. Um, and I think in one in one scene, it's got I don't know in the draft that you sent, but he the Predator it collects skins. It doesn't collect the skull and the spine. So when yeah. Matheny comes to the camp, he sees all his friends sort of stretched out on these drying racks. And so I wanted to I asked if I oh, can we get creative with these kills? Can we do these like spring loaded clockwork saw kind of horror things that when each of these soldiers dies. It's just graphic and horrific. And they were like, yeah, go for it. So there's, you know, I have, I think I had a scene where one of the soldiers, Blaine, I think it's Blaine, gets ambushed and the hunter has got this hollow tube that he shoves into his head and then his brain like sprays out the top. And, <laughs> you know, just thinking about oh, like, man. how can he, how can he preserve the skin? He doesn't care about the skull or the, the spine. How can he kill these people in a way that preserves the skin? But it's still just graphic. There's a scene where I think it's Ramirez, something attaches to his rib cage and like splits it open while he's still alive. And, <laughs> So, like, and Patrick Blaine, the artist, was perfect for this. He was setting these pages in, and I was just like, man, people are going to lose their minds when they see this. This is going to be so great. Someday, I hope. Someday, hopefully. Yeah. So, in in terms of perhaps differences to the the way the Predators Mm -hmm. portrayed it in this particular draft, is is there any... Other than than the trophy taking that, that stick out mm. to you as being significantly different. Well, he's you know he's reptilian like in the earlier drafts, and he's more of a I don't know in the draft that you had, but he doesn't really have a cloaking device. It's more of like chameleon like skin where he can change the shift Same. the yeah shift the scales. You know, and that alone is so different from what ended up in the movie. And the relationships between the kids, you know, Matheny is so far from Dutch that even just those two factors alone make it so interesting and different. There, there was a, I mean, in terms of the one I've read, you know, there was a lot of character differences, you know, the the mm-hmm. background, the backstory with Dylan, it was Dixon in the one I've read, yes, you know, is, here, yeah. that's completely different, you know, and, and the dynamics are way mm-hmm. off as a result, you know. Yeah. And you had these extra characters that existed just to die mm-hmm. and name swaps and stuff like mm-hmm. that. And th- that whole... Anna's in the one I sent you, but she doesn't make it to the end. She just gets blitzed by the Predator as well. Uh So just the little changes, even in terms of like character names and dynamics like that. I always forget how different the earlier stuff is to the finished thing. Yeah, the Dixon character in particular, he's kind of in the draft that I have. He's kind of a villain of the story. Like he's, Mm. he's, you know, CIA and he's there to sort of oversee the mission. Yeah, you're right. It's so different. It's so different. It's interesting. I love that too. I love that as a fan to like. Oh, yeah. Yeah, look it makes at these it. projects more interesting. Yeah, because you can see what might have been, you know, and like how much things did change and what Shane Black and Schwarzenegger brought to the table when they were included in the in the development of it. Having worked for both Dark Horse and Marvel in the past, you know, how do you feel about this shift in licensing going to Marvel? You know, especially working in the industry yeah. yourself. Yeah, it's I mean, like you guys said, it felt like it was inevitable, I guess. It, it makes me sad because I I have you know, Dark Horse is sort of family. I've worked with them for so long that I felt like they were just doing, you know, they were just doing such a good job and that being able to do something like Thicker Than Blood, which was a little bit different. I was like, okay, well, maybe, with the, you know, we're going to head off in another direction here that could be really exciting. Yeah, I don't know. I don't, we'll have to see what Marvel does with it. You know, if it becomes like Alien versus X-Men, I don't know. <laughs> you know, I don't know what that's going to be. 
So it's bittersweet. You know, I'm curious to see what they're going to do with it. And they, you know, so many talented people work for Marvel, so they'll probably put a good team on it. But yeah, I'm sad for Dark Horse. Having ties with them anyway, do you, you know, think it's likely perhaps you could return? Would would you be interested in returning for something else? Yeah, sure. If they ask me to, I think the thing with Marvel is that they come to you. They like what you've done. They approach you. I don't even know who the editor is on these, these books now. I do. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think that's been our main concern with uh, the Marvel uh, acquisition is just mm-hmm. that are they going to tell as bold of stories as Dark Horse did? Yeah. I mean, Dark Horse also had their, you know, more kind of run of the mill alien predator and AVP stories, but mm-hmm. they also had a number of ones that were really bold and, and mm-hmm. different, like the one you did. Those are the kind of stories we would like to see, um, at least occasionally done with, with Marvel. And I'm sure they will do the crossovers. I hope they go. Yeah. Well, you know, they did that with Conan. Like suddenly they took the Conan license and suddenly Conan's in the Avengers. So we'll see a predator on the, on the <laughs> Avengers next. <laughs> it's uh, Jake Thomas. Huh, okay. Yeah. I, I don't know. The, you know, the sad thing about, you know, of, of the many, many sad things about the pandemics is there have been no comic book conventions anymore. So usually those are where you go and shake hands and, you know, meet a Doing editor. Networking. Yeah. So, you know, if there was an opportunity for that, I would go talk to them, but we'll see. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I love these franchises so much. I would do something. I wouldn't do, I would, I wouldn't do, you know, thicker than blood too. I would come up with something different, but see that you don't want to tell us if Tyler survives. <laughs> I like that you guys decide for yourselves, you know, like I like that, uh, well, I will say in my mind, I'm the optimist. Like, I really like the idea of him be kind of coming Maria's son and then grandson. And, did know. did he did he always get picked up by what did you say his nickname was? Hook. Did he always get oh, yeah. picked up by Hook? Yeah, that was always. I always wanted that to be the ending. I always wanted it to be Hook's nod to Maria that like you are an honorable fighter. It's a sign of respect, you know. I know that this being is important to you. Hook didn't have to do that, but he, he dragged her out of the forest fire and set her up in front of the lifeboat. You know, I don't think Hook cares whether or not Tyler gets repaired, <laughs> but I, he knows that it's important to her. And so that yeah. was kind of a, a gesture. And yeah, that was always part of it. I was just going to say, as far as the ship being destroyed at the end, was that just the forest fire had gotten out of control even with yeah. sprinklers? Or? Yeah, yeah, it was... Yeah, I really, and again, I liked the visual of the two ships of the Predator ship and the lifeboat flying off in opposite directions while the luxury ship blew up in the background. I just, that was, I couldn't resist it. And also, you know, Maria now has insurance money, so she can, she can, <laughs> right. she can fix her brother. It'll be an interesting claim to make. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, I did like the shot where you see her on the cockpit and then it yeah. the, the Predator in, in his cockpit. Yeah, cool. again, that's like the repetition of, of imagery that I really like about comics. You, yeah, you can lay something out that it just is a mirror of itself. And yeah, again, Doug, when we had talked about doing this interview, I was thinking about like what would I have added? And for a moment, I was thinking like, maybe I should have had that stupid bird behind Hook's <laughs> shoulder, you know, in that <laughs> last shot. <laughs> oh, that would, yeah. I would have been funny. Did the bird survive the alien? I can't remember. Yeah, it yeah it escapes. Like uh, the other idea that I didn't get into is that everybody on the ship hates that bird. <laughs> the, like it attacks Tyler, you know, when he comes down from the ship, and the alien, you know, the xenomorph hates it and can't catch it, and that's why it's chasing it around the lab. But it's yeah, the bird's a piece of crap. <laughs> <laughs> was um, was there anybody left alive on that ship when it blew up? I don't just just the bird, just the bird. I think. <laughs> Yeah, I liked, you know, I liked the idea of the Predators, mostly Splitter, the one with the the whip, just going like level by level and just cleaning the place out. So the the whip was an interesting choice as well, because that's what, AVPR? And we've seen that Mm -hmm. in... The mobile game AVP Evolution. Evolution. I think the only occurrences of the Razor Whip. Yeah. So it's one of my favorite 
Predator weapons. So I cool. just thought it was cool. I didn't. I the way Doug designed it, I just described it as an electric whip, like a razor whip. But Doug gave it that cool design, you know, that it almost looks like a xenomorph tail. So uh, was that not conscious on your part callback to Requiem? No, I hadn't even thought of it. I mean, now that you mention it, yeah. No, I liked the, uh, I just wanted him to have a razor whip. I just really liked the idea of each of them. You know, Hook has got that ridiculous wrist blade, that, like ridiculously long wrist blade that I'd had plans for that to come up again later, but I couldn't, I couldn't find an idea for it. And then Doug did the genius thing. I don't know if you guys caught this, but when Splitter, the younger predator comes to get Hook out of the elevator, there are all those scratch marks on the door that it looks like the predator had tried to free himself before he passed out that was all Doug and I just thought oh man what a nice touch what a nice touch yeah it was kind of cool how he cauterized the wounds with yeah the, the, whip. the razor whip the design of the whip is pretty much what it was in, in oh AR. okay so it that, wasn't electrified in that movie but okay so that might have been Doug that might have been a touch from Doug where he was just doing a nod to that the the whole yeah. elevator bit as well was another one of those oh damn moments <laughs> yeah because yeah when when it happened you know, you were talking about, you know, the reactions to issue by issue, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You, you know, as you're taking it. I, that's why I don't like doing, once upon a time, I tried reviewing issue by issue. Yeah. And I didn't, I didn't, I didn't like doing it because you don't have a complete story. So yeah, you, your reactions, tough. you know, your reactions don't necessarily equate to what the entire experience is. But, you know, when that bit happened, it was like, oh, you know, the initial yeah. reaction is, oh, shit. Yeah. That's like, yeah. like, oh, is he? He's dead already. Yeah, yeah. And then, then you come back to it, and yeah. you know he gets everything cut off and cauterized, yeah. and it just keeps going. It's like Jesus Christ, these guys <laughs> yeah. are taking an absolute yeah. goddamn beating. Yeah, yeah, that's what I wanted. I wanted. I knew that it, we were going to have a crippled predator, and so I just had to figure out how that was going to happen. Personally speaking, it's one of the things I've always wanted to see is, you know, this idea of a, a predator that had come through a previous battle and mm-hmm. was augmented somehow, you know, maybe maybe had a Captain Hook hand. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Kind of thing. Yeah, so. I was hoping. Yeah. I actually, you know, there was a part of me toward the end, too, where I was like, man, if they make action figures of these predators, it would be awesome. Is this hook one going to look dumb? <laughs> you know, like <laughs> maybe I should have given him a like a better prosthetic or something. But yeah, I'm with you. I love the idea of a that would be a cool idea, though. I mean, if yeah. there ever was a sequel with the uh, augmented, like he has yeah. a robot arm and a robot leg. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, he survived. He's out there. He's kicking around. That's actually everything from us. But before we let you escape, mm-hmm. is there uh, anything you'd like to share? Any anecdote or thought that we just haven't given you the opportunity to with any of our questions so far? I think we've covered pretty much everything. I just want to uh, just say that I appreciate you guys having me on. Like, it's good to like doing this is such a solitary job. And like I said, I finished this story in 2019. So it's there's a lot of space for me between finishing the story and sending it off and sort of crossing my fingers and hoping people like it. And then actually, you know, interacting with you guys and hearing that like, okay, yeah, it landed. It, it worked. So this, I really appreciate this. I appreciate this conversation and thanks. Yeah, we, we really appreciate having you on as well. And thanks for making such an awesome comic. And ah, we really hope to see your Predator story one of these days. Yeah, me too. <laughs> me too. <laughs> Do you have any particular social outlets or perhaps your website that you want to shout Just, out? Um, I'm not on social media because it's bad for me because I can't get <laughs> off of it, you know? And like people, I, I used to be on all of it and they're jerks online a lot of times, you know, so it's, I just don't need it. So no, I just have my website, which is jeremybarlow.com, which takes, there's a link to my Amazon author page, which has all my books. I'm terrible at self-promotion, which is not great for my career, but, uh, (laughs) so that's there. And then, you know, there's a link to my email address if anybody wants to get in touch that way, but yeah, that's it. And just keep an eye out for, uh, James Cameron's avatar next month. I would be sure to give that one a read as well as your Star Wars comic. I want to check that one out. Oh yeah. Yeah. Darth Maul, son of dad. Do you guys watch the Mandalorian? 
Oh, I've yes. been waiting yes. um, to watch second season because I like watching it all the way. It's through. good. So I there's waiting, but there's stuff in my Darth Maul book that ties into the Mandalorian with the dark saber oh, and cool. the in the Mandalorian. So you know, there's that. And then Rebels. I don't know if you ever watched Star Wars Rebels, the animated series, but there's a lot of Mandalorian backstory in that that's worth checking out. Yeah. So through Sabine, isn't it? Yeah. So I'm I'm not a massive Star Wars fan, uh-huh. but Mandalorian. Oh man, oh, it's man. so good. It is so really good. good. I really uh, enjoyed the first season. I'm looking forward to. Uh, oh, you're, you're gonna love it. Second season just I think elevates everything they did in the first season. That was great. They're just like we're gonna do more, do better. It's, it's proven that Dave Filoni and, and John Favreau aren't, yeah. aren't fluke, fluking it. Yeah, it's so good. So yeah, that's that's uh, that's it for me. Okay, and we end the AVP Galaxy podcast on a Star Wars note. Um, <laughs> if you haven't already, and for some reason you've spoiled the hell out of it, go and buy Thicker Than Blood. I probably should have done a spoiler warning at the start uh, of this. Maybe you still but, can. And remember, it's going out of print, so get it while you can. Oh, yeah, be a collector's piece soon. Yeah. And until hopefully Marvel, you know. Yeah, fingers crossed. Put it out there again. We have our website, which has a message board and discussions there among our community. And you can find us at avpgalaxy.net is our main website. We're on all the major socials, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube. If you search AVP Galaxy or Alien vs. Predator Galaxy, you're sure to find us. So this is uh, Aaron. And Adam. And this is Jeremy. And uh, where's Chris Hansen when you need him? Uh, thank you yeah yeah thank you guys thanks for joining us yeah absolutely this has been great